We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. And I believe we're reading Romans 16 tonight, so if you'd turn to Romans 16, we will puzzle our way through a bunch of names here and see how we do. Romans 16, the concluding chapter of the gospel to the Romans, the gospel systematically explained in its doctrine to the Christians at Rome. Chapter 16, verse number 1. Please follow along as we read God's holy word. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sencrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Epineatus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen, chosen of the Lord and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobas, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you, and Cortus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, 
according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the of the sorry for obedience to the faith to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever amen amen that's God's word too so we commend that to you for your benefit all right youngsters may trot upstairs slowly Hopefully not too fast, and Jansen will trot up here to the pulpit and give us the word tonight. Thank you, Jansen. Good evening, Bazelocks. Welcome. Pastor, after hearing you read all those names, now I know why Drew couldn't be here tonight. Yeah, we know now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, good evening. Please turn your Bibles this evening to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll pick up where we left off before um, in uh, chapter 4, verses 6 to 10 this evening. And uh, I have three simple truths for us this evening that I'd like to, us to ponder from God's Word, drawn out from this section And that is this, a good minister teaches the word, trains in godliness, and labors diligently. And of course, the focus we'll see is upon Timothy as a minister of Christ, functioning in his uh, position there in Ephesus. But these truths do generally apply to all Christian believers. These aren't just for the pastor, for the minister, for church leadership, but for all people. And so I commend these thoughts to you this evening as we look into God's word. But let me read for you to you uh, from God's word, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 10. Paul writes this, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, if you've been following along in our study of 1 Timothy, this epistle here, you'll learn and recognize that there is a number of instructions, a number of sections that include instructions to both the church at large and sometimes more specific groups, such as the false teachers, at other times church leadership, the elders, the deacons, sometimes specifically focused on the women in the church and other times the men. And what Paul is going to encourage Timothy with this evening, or in this passage as we look at this evening, is this, that Timothy is to continue on teaching these things, regardless of whether the church accepts it or not. And here in this section, Paul focuses on the spiritual well-being of Timothy. He shifts his attention from the problems in Ephesus, which he's 
again, addressed over and over again in this, this epistle and from various kind of uh, perspectives and angles. And he is now going to focus on his son in the faith, who is left to deal with the problematic false teachers, the doctrines that were ungodly, unbiblical, contrary to the gospel. Of course, every pastor would dream of a church with none of these issues, a perfect kind of church, as it were. But that is just not the case, since every church is susceptible to false teaching, to worldly wisdom, to traditions of men that are against Scripture. And so Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him, regardless of the fact that these issues are present in the church, and perhaps regardless of the fact that some will uh, heed his word and others will not. And when those kinds of problems arise, whether a pastor or a church member, we must address these kinds of problems biblically and not be disheartened or fall prey to whatever that problem is that you are trying to root out. Paul's word of encouragement or instruction to Timothy as he addresses his own problems in Ephesus is is to perform his basic duties as a minister of Christ Jesus. These kinds of pastoral priorities, though not an exhaustive list as we see here, will help him in his effort to deal with the problems of his day. And so we see, beginning in verse 6 this evening, that Timothy is, is instructed in this basic kind of priority to teach the word teach the word. Paul writes in verse 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. The first charge that we see to Timothy is to teach the word or instruct the brethren. Teaching and instructing, similar idea here. The responsibility laid upon all pastors, all ministers of Christ, is to instruct the church in the gospel and sound doctrine. We see this later on in uh, just a few verses later in 1 Timothy 4.13. What does Paul tell Timothy there? He says this, Till I come, give attention to reading, that is the reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to doctrine. These basic kind of priorities are for, for Timothy to fulfill. He's not to neglect them, not to ignore them, not to stop doing them, but to continue to do these kinds of ministries. And that is the responsibility of all pastors, all ministers of Christ, to instruct the church in these things. Paul, though, was not rebuking Timothy for ceasing to teach sound doctrine. We, we know by Timothy's character that he was already doing this, and so it's not as if Paul's rebuking him like, you stop doing this, but you know, restart it and, and, uh, and restart what you, uh, what you should be doing. Rather, We know that Timothy was a godly man, reliable in the ministry, and was specially commissioned to be a minister of Christ. So rather than rebuking Timothy, that's thinking of it in that manner, rather what Paul is doing is encouraging Timothy to keep on doing what he was already working hard to do, to teach sound doctrine and to reprove the false teachers. Sometimes a pastor is doing what he's supposed to be doing, but he just still needs some encouragement. After laboring week after week to prepare messages and do other kinds of ministry, he may not be 
there may, no, may not be fault in what he's doing, but he just needs the encouragement to keep on doing it. Don't give up, especially when perhaps he's not getting the kind of response he'd like. You know, people aren't listening, they're not heeding his advice, or perhaps there just seems to be no change in the spiritual stature of people. There's no new converts. There's no new people coming to the church. Regardless of all that, Paul encourages Timothy in his own way to keep on doing what he's doing. Keep on instructing. The idea is that Paul wants Timothy to keep on instructing the brethren. In doing so, he will continue to prove himself a good servant. We see this kind of conditional statement here, although it's not really conditional, but it's the manner in which he should do things. That is, if he keeps on instructing the brethren, then he'll continue to prove himself a good minister. Likewise, if he were to stop what he was doing, then, well, we could say there's fault and that he's not being the good kind of minister that he ought to be. Interesting enough, in connection to our study earlier on, on uh, early, earlier on, uh, deacons, uh, Paul uses the same word here, actually. It's really, uh, you could translate it, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. The word there is diakonos, the same word used of deacons. However, as we said back then, this isn't, he isn't using it here in the technical sense of the office of deacon. Rather, someone who is characterized as being a servant. They're servant-hearted. They're serving Christ Jesus. They're an agent of Christ in service for him. And so, if Paul continues to instruct the brethren, he will prove himself as that kind of person, a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, the verb here, instruct, uh, actually has the idea of laying something out for someone in the sense of making it known. And so, um, we can draw from that that what Timothy is, is encouraged to do is to Keep on teaching them. Keep on laying it out for them to receive and to embrace. There's no guarantee, though, in this command that they'll actually embrace it. But regardless of that fact, he's to keep on laying it out. It's kind of like maybe uh, someone who's uh, uh, teaching someone in a trade. Well, they may not get it the first time, but you just kind of keep teaching them. You keep laying it out for them, reminding them of you know how to do something. You know, maybe you're. Maybe you're learning it to play an instrument or learning a new language or whatever it may be, and you have someone teaching you, and, and a good teacher will be patient with you and just kind of keep laying it out to you again and again, regardless of whether you get it or not the first time. And sometimes a pastor, a minister, feels like his flock isn't following his instruction or the counselee just won't listen to his advice. You can't force someone to obey God's word. They must obey willingly. It is the work of the Spirit to convict them of of their shortcomings or wrongdoing and give them a change of heart and mind. And so the pastor, the good servant, can simply do this, lay it out for them. Explain the scripture in hope that the Spirit of God will work in them. All you can do is state the truth and leave it to the Lord to do the rest of the work. And Timothy probably felt this way at times when dealing with the problems in Ephesus. He kept laying it out, laying it out, explaining, instructing, rebuking, correcting, and yet perhaps the change wasn't as coming as quickly as he'd like. And so Paul, in his wisdom, encourages Timothy not to give up, but to keep on keeping on. Don't let up, don't give up, just keep doing what you're doing, Timothy. 
And the same could be said of all pastors today or any believer who's trying to encourage others to instruct them, maybe disciple them, counsel them. Don't give up. Keep working. Keep praying, asking the Lord to work in this person's life. Now, these things that Paul refers to that Timothy is to keep on instructing them in is the basic ideas of 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, that they are not to, uh, they are not to be uh, falling prey to the lies that they are to uh, not be married or to abstain from certain foods. This kind of asceticism is, is uh, rebuked by Paul. He says, you know, that, that doesn't lead to any kind of form of godliness, or it has a form of godliness, but it doesn't lead to sanctification and uh, much less salvation. But it doesn't stop there. I don't think Paul is just referring back to 4, 1 through 5 when he says instruct them in these things. I think he's thinking all the way back really to the beginning of the epistle and especially in chapters 2 and 3 where he begins to, to lay out uh, how Timothy is to instruct the church and, and correct their thinking about, uh, about Scripture and, and sound doctrine. If he continues to teach about the correct use of the law, like we saw earlier on in the epistle, and about grace and salvation and proper church conduct and church leadership, he will continue to be a good servant. That's the idea here. Keep on instructing them in these things, and you will prove yourself as a good servant, a good minister. And so we draw from that this evening that one of the most basic priorities of a pastor or any minister is to is to do the work of teaching. Don't forsake that. Don't neglect it. Recognize the value that it has. On the negative kind of side, if he is not teaching, he is not fulfilling his role, and therefore cannot be said to be a good minister of Christ, because a good minister teaches the word. Now Paul goes on to say in verse 6 that uh, if he keeps on teaching them, he will be a good minister of Jesus Christ nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. And so in this portion of the verse, I I think we can draw from this that there is a fruit that comes from teaching the word, a fruit that comes from teaching the word. A good minister who teaches it will see fruit, both in the lives of those he's teaching, but also in his own life as well. Paul tells Timothy that by teaching the word continually, He will also be training himself up in the words of faith and sound doctrine. Now, uh, most translations use the word nourished here. They translate the Greek word to to nourished. But, uh, and this is probably drawing from the metaphor of teaching as food elsewhere. You know, uh, for instance, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 2, I'll just read that for you as one example. It says, uh, in I, or beginning in verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. And so we see throughout Scripture on a number of occasions that, um, that uh, this, uh, this kind of uh, food metaphor to uh, resemble or reflect the teaching of God's word and, and, the, and the meat of God's word and the actual content of God's word. And so a lot of translations draw from this metaphor and therefore translate it as nourished in the words. But really, if you look at the, uh, 
the, uh, the Greek text, and I'm not going to get into all of that now. The, uh, the actual word means to be trained, to be trained. And I think this is a, good, a better translation because, one, um, well, simply that's what the word means. And, two, uh, the idea of training is used in the immediate context, as we'll look at in, in the next few verses. And then, thirdly, the idea is not one of sustenance here, but, but one of correct doctrine. It's not about uh, living by this, but rather uh, you know, living by the word of God, although that is a true principle. But rather, the idea here is that uh, in order to teach correct doctrine, they need to be trained in good doctrine. Indeed, a pastor, as we just said, should draw his sustenance from the word of God, But in my mind, in regards to this context, that idea of of sustenance or being nourished in the words is too passive for this context, which deals with instructing, exercising toward godliness, laboring. So rather than taking Paul to say that Timothy should draw his daily sustenance from scriptures, he is to be training himself daily in the word if he wants to be a good minister. It's more of an active idea here. Not simply that he just draws, like, uh, you know, my mind you know, first goes to, you know, being refreshed in the word by, you know, a devotional in the morning, which, you know, we kind of we read it and we kind of find some sustenance for the day to get us through. But that's not really the idea here in regards to what Timothy is supposed to be doing. Rather, that he, it is to be, that he is to be drawing uh, and teaching himself from the word, drawing truth from the word, teaching himself in the word so that he can be a good minister. There, are, of course, are times when all you can do is be refreshed in the word by reading it because perhaps you don't have enough time to sit down and do a thorough study. Other times, though, you really study with the goal of learning doctrine. You take the time to study it out to, and to learn more and to apply it and and to understand the doctrine that's being taught in whatever passage you're, you're working through. And so um, we, look, we look for opportunities for that. And Timothy, by continually instructing the church in these doctrinal matters, will also be training himself as well. And that's the idea here. If, if Timothy continues to instruct the brethren in a, kind of a, as a matter of, of, of just the nature of it, he will also be instructing himself. And so he is to be training himself in the words of faith and of the good doctrine. The benefit of having to teach other people, if you're a pastor or if you teach a Sunday school class or are discipling someone, the benefit of having to do this and think through difficult doctrinal matters is that you learn more about the matter yourself. That is the joy of studying to prepare to preach a message or teach a lesson or share a devotional. Not only are you teaching others, but you are sharpening your own understanding at the same time. At the same time, though, if a pastor shirks his responsibility of teaching or doesn't put in much effort, just enough to get by, not only will he be depriving the church of solid teaching, but he will also not be making great strides for himself to be as knowledgeable as he should be in the gospel and sound doctrine. And so Paul tells Timothy that by instructing others, he will also be training himself up in the words of faith and of the good doctrine. 
Now, of course, a pastor obviously must balance many responsibilities. As much as he'd like to be uh, in his study 24-7 and be in the Word, training himself so that he can train others and teach others, that's just not always possible. Rarely is it possible to spend that kind of time. Especially, you know, in a smaller church, even like ourselves. But the fact is, he still must develop a habit, a day-to-day habit of training himself in the Word. He cannot neglect it just because there's other responsibilities. Remember uh, back in Acts when we read this, and we've obviously been taught on it before, uh, the apostles uh, elected to uh, find deacons, to find servants who could meet the, the kind of basic needs of the church so that they could focus on what? On the word, on prayer and, and teaching and being in the word. And so we draw from that that a pastor's priority is to be training himself in the word, to be, to be in the word daily and, and uh, surely enough to be, to be well equipped and well prepared to teach it on a Sunday or a Wednesday or what other, whatever other opportunity he has. This is a basic pastoral priority. Of course, we know that Timothy was brought up being taught scripture from uh, other places. We know this. And it appears that he truly embraced it as the truth as he continued to faithfully follow sound teaching into his ministry. Look at the end of uh, verse 6. It says, He will be trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. Carefully followed. And so we see here the example that Timothy was very careful to follow the teaching of the gospel and of sound doctrine, good doctrine. And in so doing, he is a good minister of Christ Jesus. On a, or, you know, the, the, uh, the general believer, you may not be up here preaching or teaching, but you too can have a legacy of following carefully sound doctrine, being a, a man or a woman of God who embraces the truth, follows it carefully, is concerned to live out what God's word says and not neglect uh, what he has taught you, not neglect what your parents perhaps have taught you from an early age in the scriptures. The legacy of any believer and a pastor or a Christian, a good legacy that is for any pastor or Christian, is to leave behind the legacy of upholding sound doctrine. The legacy of, of, of following carefully the word of God for your entire life. The second word of encouragement that Paul gives to Timothy is this. Not only to teach the word, but also to train in godliness. And we see this in verses 7 to 9. Paul writes here, But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself Toward godliness, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the having promise of the life that is now and of that which is to come. The first thing that we see here is that Timothy is to reject profane and old wives' fables. I think this uh, is closely connected to what Paul talks about in chapter one, where he says that they've gone after genealogies and these myths. These things that have no, no godly value to them whatsoever. In fact, they have the opposite effect. They, they created dissension and disputes rather than furthering God's work. And so 
Similarly, these you know old wise fables, whatever they are, in fact, you know, I'll even admit, I didn't do study into what, what these could have been because it doesn't really matter. That's not the purpose in pointing them out. The purpose is actually to say, forget about those things. Don't listen to them. Don't fall prey to them. Don't, uh, don't waste your time simply with them. Rather, uh, exercise yourself toward godliness. Rather than be caught up and drawn away by these silly myths or genealogies and the like, none of which have any spiritual value. Timothy, and likewise all of us today, are to train ourselves, much like an athlete, for the goal or purpose of godliness. Timothy is to train himself by good doctrine so that he will increase in godliness. Notice the connection there. Good doctrine leads to godliness. Sometimes we think about doctrine as kind of just the, you know, the, the theological things that people just like to discuss to demonstrate you know, how much they know about Scripture, but doctrine, and ha- doctrine has real practical value. In fact, uh, if you forsake good doctrine, you'll land yourself in a similar si- situation as those in Ephesus who began to dispute and, and to create dissension and to be drawn away from even their faith in Christ into apostasy. And so good doctrine, sound doctrine, matters on a practical, uh, on a very practical level. How else can a Christian be godly unless he is training himself by the word of God? I really want you to think about that for a moment. How else can a Christian be godly unless he is training himself by the word of God? Where else are you going to find truth that leads to godliness? Certainly not uh, in the things that the world has to offer, not the philosophy, not the uh, last night's news, not, uh, not the doctrine and the indoctrination that the school system's teaching. Certainly that doesn't lead to godliness. Where else can a Christian uh, find truth that leads to godliness but, in, but other than in the word of God? This is an imperative given to follow that all Christians should submit themselves to that they are to exercise themselves toward godliness. We see then uh, not only uh, in contrast to rejecting profane and old wise fables, rather on the positive side, Timothy is to exercise himself toward godliness, exercise toward godliness, much as we said like an athlete who disciplines his body, by perhaps avoiding you know, the bad foods and consuming the good foods that will give him the energy and build up his muscles and uh, you know, give him endurance, keeping healthy habits, you know, working out often, regularly, building up endurance for the purpose of perhaps winning a medal in some race or uh, achieving some personal goal. The goal of every Christian, in contrast to that kind of idea that Paul is presenting, The goal of every Christian ought to be to train himself in the word of God to become more and more godly. And so Paul is drawing out this kind of comparison between the athlete who does all these kinds of disciplines, disciplines his body, his mind, and, uh, you know, every part of himself in order to achieve this goal, whatever that goal may be, a medal or a personal goal. Likewise, the Christian should be exercising himself in the word of God to train himself to be godly. That is his goal, that it should be his ambition, to train himself in the word of God to become more and more godly. 
And every believer should be making intentional, decisive action to move toward godliness. It's not going to happen on its own. You know, what athlete just sits around, you know, eating his donuts and, and watching other athletes exercise, thinking, well, you know, keep up this for a little bit, and I'll be able to be right where they're at, you know, in a few days or a few weeks. No, he's got to get in the action. He's got to make decisive decisions, intentional decisions, to train himself to be prepared or to meet whatever goal, achieve whatever goal he has laid out for himself. Similarly, the believer who sits on the sidelines is not training himself for godliness. Let me say it another way. If you think that by simply attending church and sitting there, you're going to achieve godliness, well, let me, uh, let me uh, say it this way. That's not going to happen. You have to be engaged. You have to be actively working out your salvation, training yourself in godliness. Simply coming to church, like simply showing up at the gym, doesn't result in godliness. You know, no person goes to the gym and just sits there and watches the person on the treadmill and says, you know, well, now I've gotten my exercise in and I'll go home. No, it's, it's a silly analogy, but similarly for the Christian, if he simply just shows up and, uh, you know, maybe he's listening, you know, he's, he's cognate, but he's not doing anything about it. He's just observing, well, that, that's not leading to godliness. That's, that's, not what Paul said, that's not what Paul means when he says exercise yourself toward godliness. He's talking about real action, real application of the word of God, the hard labor of, of, of disciplining yourself. Rooting out sin and putting on uh, righteousness. Putting on and working out uh, and following the commands of God. Why, why do we do this? Why, is, why should Timothy do this? Why ought we to do this today? Well, Paul tells us in verse 8. He says, For bodily exercise profits a little. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that is now that now is and of that which is to come. The argument that Paul is making here, or the analogy we could say, goes this way. Bodily exercise has temporary value, but godliness has eternal value. Bodily exercise may have temporal benefits for this life, but only for this life alone, and really, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's not enough to get you, uh, uh, you know, it might add a one, two, three, four, five years to your life, but in the end, it's not going to make you live forever. And so it has a very limited kind of value, a very temporal value. It's limited to this life on earth. It cannot provide the kind of eternal benefits that godliness can. Bodily exercise, of course, demonstrates self-discipline and hard work, but it will ultimately not generate one ounce of godliness at all. Of course, you know, Paul, what Paul is not saying, and sometimes I think people say this about this passage, that, you know, we shouldn't exercise because it has no profit whatsoever. It's a waste of time, you know, and rather, you know, do other things, you know, and of course, we shouldn't give all our time to exercising because there is much more profitable and valuable things. But I don't think that Paul is discouraging exercise. He's simply saying it's, it has a very temporal value or benefit in, in contrast to 
the value that godliness has for eternity. We have to acknowledge that there are certainly benefits to bodily exercise. Generally, we know that those who exercise are in better health and and often live longer, though there are exceptions. Furthermore, if you take care of your body, there are some kind of, we could say, uh, spiritual implications to that. It enables you to be more active and serve longer rather than you know, not taking care of your health and dying early when you could have had longer life and served the Lord longer, served your family longer, your spouse, your church. And so there obviously are positive implications to exercising. And I would, I would even go as far to say Christians of all people should steward their body well, knowing that God has created it, given it to them, and it is for service to the Lord. And so they ought to, to take care of it so they continue, can continue to live a long life of service to the Lord. But at the end of the day, it, as Paul says, it, it doesn't have value, at least in an eternal perspective. It has a very short life to it, a very short uh, kind of value to it and duration. Rather, though, in contrast, godliness is profitable, he says, for all things because, what does he say? It has promise of the life that is now is, so this life on earth, and also of the life which is to come. Unlike bodily exercise, training in godliness is profitable not only for this life, but the life to come. And the future, that future life obviously is not immediately accessible to us now, but we believe that if you live more godly now, you receive a better reward one day. And so not only is it profitable for this life, which we ought to be seeking our own sanctification and uh, godliness, but it also, we know, has, has eternal value as well. There are spiritual rewards for those who are walking in godliness and serving the Lord faithfully. We want to be that kind of person that stands before the Lord and hears, well done, good and faithful servant. And that requires some level of godliness to achieve that. Obviously, this truth uh, has to be held in connection with the fact that no one gets uh, uh, to heaven in the first place by being good on their own. And so it is not that godliness gets you eternal life. Rather, that godliness has eternal value. And it is only because of the grace of God that you can achieve any kind of level of godliness in this life. Godliness begins in the heart and then manifests itself in good works on the outside. And so every believer who makes a profession of godliness ought to be manifesting that godliness in their works and how they live their life and conduct themselves in the church, like the kind of instructions Paul gave earlier on to men in the church, women in the church, church leadership, elders and deacons. And then finally this evening, as we close, we see one more word of encouragement to Timothy and to all of us today. Not only does a good minister teach the word, train in godliness, but he also labors diligently. Look with me at verse 10. It says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. 
training in the word and the pursuit of godliness draw their, their meaning from the hope of salvation. The whole reason that, they, that Paul uh, uh, pursues this kind of godliness and the whole reason Timothy ought to as well and train himself in the word and exercise toward godliness is because of the hope of salvation. If godliness only offered hope in this life, well, we could say in one sense it would be no better than the physical exercise that uh, Paul talks about because they would both be very uh, temporal, very short in duration. However, it does offer something beyond this life, and so Paul instructs Timothy to join him in laboring like he does with this very truth in mind. He is confident that his labor will not be useless because that hope will be realized since it comes from the living God. God is able to fulfill the promise of life for those who pursue it. And so, like Timothy, as a believer, we ought to live a life of godliness, train ourselves in the word of God and the gospel, truths and good doctrine, exercise ourselves toward godliness because we have this hope. We have the hope of the living God. We trust in the living God. Kind of stands in contrast to what Paul was, or what Pastor was speaking about this morning where, uh, you know, uh, these, these idols, you know, if you can steal an idol or a god, you know, what kind of god is it? Well, we, we trust in the living God, and so we, we act and behave accordingly. We act uh, in a way that demonstrates that we trust in this living God, that we're not just doing this for, for useless reasons, for profitless reasons, for valueless reasons. Rather, we labor diligently toward godliness, toward learning God's word and applying it because of the hope that we have in Christ and the living God. We see uh, in verse 10 that uh, he is described as the living God, but also the one who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. God is described as the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. This, of course, then should encourage all Christians to exercise themselves toward godliness because God is their savior. What does he save them to? To good works, to glorifying God. And so because of the fact that he is their savior, we should respond in obedience to Christ and to his word. Now, um, there, we find this phrase here, uh, a very interesting one, I think, who is the phrase, who is the savior of all men? And a lot of people have scratched their heads and thought about, you know, what does this mean? How, I mean, of course, we know that not all men are saved. Paul's not promoting some kind of, you know, the universalism that, you know, God is saving everyone. It's, of course, not the case. It, it contradicts other uh, doctrinal truths and scriptures. And so uh, that's not, that cannot be what Paul means here, that, he is saving all men in a redemptive kind of way for eternal life, but there is a sense in which he is the savior of all men. The Bible means that all people in a broad sense, uh, and he's not restricting this you know, to all men who are elect. The Bible simply just doesn't say that. It doesn't say you know, the savior of all men who are elect. Rather, it just simply says the savior of all men. And so we take, you know, it at, take it at its word that it means all men. 
God has provided the promise of life for all people through the sacrificial and substitutionary death of Christ. The fact is, is the gospel is for all people. Of course, we know that not all will believe. Not all will respond in faith. And uh, not all will be called by him. However, the truth still remains that he has provided a way of salvation for all men. That promise is for all men, and of course he applies it to those who believe in Christ. And Paul has confidence in the provision of God for eternal life, and that, that is why he labors and suffers you know, insults and injury in his pursuit of, of, of godliness and pursuit of life with, with God forever. And that has tremendous application for us today. Why labor diligently? Why, why go about exercising ourselves toward godliness? Why, why uh, submit ourselves to the word of God when, the, when we see you know, the pleasures of the world, people acting however they want? Why give ourselves to training in the word of God? It is because we live to serve God, the living God, our Savior, despite how others behave around us, despite whether they listen to what we have to say, despite the fact that they may make uh, fun of us, may ridicule us for our, our obedience to Christ, for not participating in the kinds of worldly things that they participate in. Why give ourselves why give our lives to labor diligently and to suffer insult? It is because we serve the living God, who is our Savior. Let's pray as we close this evening. Heavenly Father, I pray this evening as we go our way that, like Timothy, who Paul was seeking to encourage amidst the struggles that, the very difficult struggle, struggles that he was dealing with in Ephesus. Lord, we might not have the same exact troubles he had, the same kind of issues, problems, but uh, we, we're not immune to the problems that this world presents us in this age that uh, is contrary to the word of God and trying to, trying to, uh, to silence Christians, silence sound doctrine, Lord, we're not immune to those things, and so may we also be encouraged, as Paul encouraged Timothy, to, to be teaching the word, to be training ourselves in godliness actively, intentionally, and Lord, laboring diligently because of the hope that we have in Christ, in the living God. Lord, may we not be discouraged today or tomorrow or the next Lord, may we not be wandering aimlessly, but put ahead of ourselves before our eyes the priorities that not only apply to pastors and ministers in the official sense, but, Lord, to all believers to be in the word, to be trained by the word, and to labor diligently all our days. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.